Chapter Two of Pleasure Cycling by Henry Clyde. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two: Choosing a Bicycle. You may talk about your ships of state and how they plough the main. You may talk about your big balloons and eke your railroad train. You may jolly up your trotting horse and speed him till he reel. But when you're after health and fun, there's nothing like the wheel john henderson garnsey it is not the purpose of this book to give a detailed history of the development of the safety bicycle of eighteen ninety five from the celeripede and dracine of eighteen sixteen and the machines called hobby horses in all of which the rider sat on a perch between the two wheels and propelled the machine by thrusting with his feet against the ground through the lalament velocipede of eighteen sixty six to which it is believed the pedal motion was first applied and in which the essential elements of the modern safety first appear nor is it worth the while to devote space to the high wheels or ordinaries so common ten years ago but which have now nearly disappeared from the roads an exhaustive and accurate history of the bicycle may be found in luther h porter's wheels and wheeling and to that book the reader who may be interested in the subject is referred neither is it possible to attempt here a description in detail of the different bicycles now on sale in the english and american markets the illustrated catalogues and circulars issued by their respective manufacturers sufficiently and fairly describe the details and peculiarities of the different wheels so that an intending purchaser studying and comparing the catalogues can get a very good idea of the characteristics of the best-known bicycles the principal parts common to most models of the safety bicycle are the frame built from steel tubing and answering to the body of an ordinary wheeled vehicle frames are built of different heights to suit the reach of different riders at the base of the frame the sprocket bracket or crank bracket carrying a shaft or axle which answers to the main shaft in any system of machinery and on which is fixed a sprocket or toothed wheel and the pedal cranks and pedals the wheels generally twenty-eight inches in diameter the rear being the driving and the front the steering wheel the head consisting of the handlebar and the vertically set tube which carries it this vertical tube slides into and is clamped to a tube which passes through the forward tube of the frame called the steering post and makes the top of the fork which being turned with the movement of the head takes the steering wheel with it the chain which transmits the power from the sprocket to the rear sprocket a smaller toothed wheel set on the rear axle of the machine the saddle post or the tube of the frame into which slides the saddle rod or tube carrying the saddle which is adjustable to any convenient height the pneumatic tires the valves passing through the wheel fellows by the application of an air pump to which the tires are inflated the step usually a tubular prolongation of the left-hand rear axle nut 
the double part of the frame carrying the real axle bearings is called the rear fork foot rests or coasters set upon the steering fork and brake work may be added also lantern clip bell and cyclometer to measure distances the principal devices upon which the utility of the modern safety depends are first the system of gear and the transmission of power by the endless chain secondly the application of the ball bearing and thirdly the pneumatic tire by the use of the gear and chain a wheel of small diameter say twenty eight inches is made the equivalent of a wheel of from two to three times its own diameter such as was used in the high wheels of ten years ago although this is effected with some comparative loss of power through friction and lost motion by suspending the wheel and sprocket axles and the spindles of the loose pedals within circles of steel balls accurately turned and revolving on one another and suitably enclosed within cones and cases the friction of the moving parts has been reduced to the great advantage of the durability of the machine and ease in propulsion the vibration of the rigid frame of the bicycle when running upon ordinary roads almost unendurable in the primitive machines was greatly lessened by the application of the cushion tire and is made nearly inappreciable by the use of the pneumatic footnote before the application of the pneumatic tire various devices of spring forks frames and saddles were applied in conjunction with the cushion tire to take up vibration and many machines thus equipped are still to be seen upon the road and footnote the best mechanical ingenuity and the most exquisite technical skill have been applied to devising and perfecting the parts of the modern bicycle had not this been so the practical difficulties in transmitting power through the complicated and wasteful mechanism of the machine could not have been overcome and like the old velocipedes the cycle would have been but a toy useless for practical road work the initial force which moves the bicycle is a foot pressure or push applied to a loose pedal set at the end of a crank and moving the shaft or axle on which is set the toothed wheel called a sprocket this is a lever movement in which the pedal crank is the long arm and the radius of the sprocket the shorter arm the weight here being the force in pounds necessary to move the chain and attached gearing in other words the whole load plus friction and lost motion the power is then transferred by an endless chain in itself one of the most wasteful methods of conveying power to a smaller sprocket wheel set on the rear axle of the machine here we have another lever action in which the power is applied to the extremity of the short arm of the lever this being the radius of the rear sprocket while the long arm is the radius or spoke of the rear wheel the weight being finally lifted at the end of the spoke where it meets the rim of the wheel it is evident that this weight is equivalent to the force measured in pounds required to propel the machine and that it is just so much less than the force exerted by the rider on the pedal crank as is lost by friction or wasted motion suffered in the transmission of power through the whole train of mechanism 
the great strain borne by the long arm in the second lever system has been lessened by the tangential arrangement of the spokes which is not the least useful of the various devices which have been applied to the bicycle manufacture by the application of the ball bearings at the tops respectively of the steering post and fork the actual work of steering the bicycle has been reduced to a minimum and the durability of the working parts insured the frames of the best modern bicycles are built of steel or nickel steel tubing the frame joints axles sprocket brackets and balls for the bearings with their cones and cases are made from steel forgings turned down to shape for the joints however some manufacturers have adopted the lap method of joining in which the ends of the tubes are lapped and reinforced and the joint then brazed the problem of more equally dividing the load between the front and rear wheel bearings of the machine has not yet been solved for reasons which the reader will understand if he studies carefully the arrangement of parts the architectural plan if it may be so called of his bicycle even if it were possible to distribute the load equally between the two wheels it is a question whether this would result in any practical advantage since it is evident that as the burden thrown on the forward or steering wheel is increased the friction at the steering head becomes greater and the machine less sensitive to steering great ingenuity has been applied to the perfecting of the bicycle chain the self-oiling or block chain is now used in the best machines each block containing a felt pad which being properly filled with oil will keep the chain sufficiently lubricated for a run of several hundred miles the accomplished wheelman must be a bit of a machinist as well he will learn all he can from books catalogues and circulars from bicycle agents and manufacturers and fellow cyclers but most and best from carefully studying his own machine and from trying to keep it always in perfect working order the rider like most wheelmen may have an opinion as to which is the best bicycle in the market but for obvious reasons he does not intend to obtrude his opinion here get that machine which you are convinced upon careful inquiry is the best of the high-grade wheels and do not if you can help it let the matter of price influence your choice money is better invested in a good wheel in the first place than in repairs or surgeon's bills afterwards many of what in the trade are called second-class wheels do good work but the test of these has apparently to be made upon the road at the risk of the rider not in the manufactory thus of two bicycles of a certain manufacture one has done excellent service for two seasons and appears still to be in fair condition the other went to pieces running down a moderate declivity a week after it had been put on the road another machine of a widely advertised make running at an eight-mile rate on a smooth road after a month's satisfactory service broke suddenly at the head throwing and severely injuring its rider moreover as between the high grade and second-class wheels there is generally in favor of the former a distinct advantage in greater ease of propulsion and more sensitive steering 
a bicycle of the best manufacture properly cared for is not likely to get out of order unless as the result of accident or of long use nothing unless it be a lame horse or a watch that refuses to run is more vexatious to its owner than a wheel that is half the time unfit for road use by reason of some constitutional infirmity the notion that the life of a bicycle is ordinarily but one season is altogether wrong a first-class wheel well taken care of should be good for half a dozen seasons work at least with slight expense for repairs or renewal of parts excellent second-hand machines are often to be had which practically will do as good service as new ones especially wheels which their former owners have discarded after a season's use for the latest pattern but unless you are able to trust your own judgment as a mechanic in the choice of a bicycle do not buy a second-hand wheel except of the manufacturer of the machine whose interest it is not to send out a bicycle which has not been carefully overlooked its worn bearings replaced and the machine properly set up and adjusted weight of wheel for road riding the machine should be adapted to the weight of the rider if your weight is from one hundred and forty to one hundred and seventy five pounds you may be absolutely sure that a wheel weighing about thirty pounds will do good and permanent service a lighter wheel may be trusted on asphalt roads or race tracks this rule assumes that you ride a wheel with steel rims if you use the wood rim or an all-wood wheel you of course get rid of more weight the safety bicycle in the first years of its use weighed from seventy to eighty pounds which weight by the application of ingenious devices and improved methods of manufacture was gradually reduced until in the season of eighteen ninety three we find the standard road wheels weighing from thirty to forty pounds the notion has grown that comparing wheel with wheel the lighter is absolutely the better and it is obvious that other things being equal the lighter wheel can be propelled with less expenditure of force than the heavier one the adoption of the wood rim and the paring down of the parts of the machine have at length produced the road wheel of eighteen ninety five which weighs from twenty to twenty two pounds if you intend to follow the fashions in bicycles as in clothing that is if you are to buy a new machine each season you will of course test for yourself each new construction and what follows is not intended so much for your benefit as for the information of those who intend to stick by their old wheels so long as those do satisfactory service as to the wearing qualities of the wood rim it is at this writing january eighteen ninety five too soon to speak and the writer leaves the question to the reader as one only to be answered by experience merely remarking that bulk for bulk steel is stronger than any known wood and that a steel rim well lacquered will always remain unaffected by dampness or weather conditions but it may be considered as demonstrated that a set of the best wood rims carefully used will stand two seasons wear at least the advantage in weight to be gained by the use of the wood rim is from two to three pounds within certain limits 
the importance of a greater or less weight in road riding exists rather in the imaginations of riders than in reality as is illustrated in the story of the wheelman who stopped on a hard road to strip his machine of foot-rests and lantern clip these he stowed safely in his pocket and remounting rode away with renewed spirit after a mile or two he observed complacently with a sigh of satisfaction that he could not have supposed that so small a reduction in weight could relieve him so much the rider for speed and the pleasure cycler whether in neck-and-neck -neck racing or to break records work under wholly different conditions upon the racer the slightest unfavorable conditions may have the most damaging results his time may be materially reduced by a wet or rough track by a head-wind or by half a dozen other circumstances he is to exert himself to the limits of physical endurance and he naturally will reduce his impedimenta to the utmost since with him every extra ounce of weight carried tells all superfluous clothing he will cast aside and he may even shave his head he will of course choose the lightest wheel that can stand the strain of his work with a probability of not breaking down and the number of wheels that do break down under the strain of track or road racing shows that sometimes he risks too much the rider for pleasure seeks first in the sport safety and then comfort unless upon some very long hills he will not feel the difference between a twenty-five and a twenty-pound wheel he has to propel the weight of his own body plus the weight of his machine say generally about one hundred and seventy-five pounds and he will find that a few pounds more or less will not appreciably increase or diminish the work he has to do the truth of this assertion may be tested by taking a twenty-mile run first without any load and then with a handicap of five pounds you will find that the difference in load has not made the second run appreciably slower or more fatiguing than the first it is obvious that the rider never really carries the weight of the bicycle and its load since the greater part of the weight is supported on the ground and the force exerted by the rider is only that necessary to propel it when you walk pushing your bicycle before you this force is of the slightest only a few ounces measured in pounds in the saddle the propelling force in other words the force necessary to overcome the resistance presented by the pedal to the foot is measured by a very few pounds the ratio of increase as between two machines weighing respectively twenty and forty pounds is probably not more than two pounds it follows that within reasonable limits the ease of propulsion depends more in keeping the machine accurately adjusted and well cleaned and oiled than in decreasing its weight the momentum of a heavy bicycle will help it to overcome obstacles which will stop or overthrow a lighter machine thus where two wheels weighing respectively thirty and twenty pounds were run at a slow gait against a curbstone at right angles the heavier machine easily made the lift of four inches to the level of the sidewalk while the lighter wheel was stopped short so the heavier wheel will run more smoothly and consequently with less jolting over a rough road 
upon the whole if you do not ride for speed and if you have in good order a thirty or even a thirty-five pound wheel which does your work with ease and satisfies your requirements you may as well stick to it at least until it wears out gear by the gear of a bicycle is understood that application of chain and sprockets by which the speed of the rear or driving wheel is increased so as to make it the equivalent of a wheel of larger diameter thus to say that a wheel has a sixty gear is to say that the rear wheel is the equivalent of a wheel of sixty inches in diameter run without gear that is each revolution of the sprocket sends the bicycle a distance equal to the circumference of a sixty-inch wheel the gear of a bicycle may be determined as follows divide the number of teeth in the forward sprocket by the number in the rear sprocket footnote this is of course equivalent to dividing the circumference of the larger by the circumference of the smaller wheel and footnote and multiply the quotient by the diameter in inches of the rear wheel thus supposing the number of teeth in the front sprocket to be seventeen and in the rear sprocket eight and the diameter of the rear wheel to be twenty-eight inches seventeen divided by eight equals two and an eighth times twenty-eight equals fifty-nine and a half which is the gear of the bicycle multiplying the gear by the ratio between the diameter and the circumference of the wheel fifty-nine and a half times three point one four equals one hundred eighty-six point eight three inches or fifteen point fifty seven feet which is the distance which the bicycle will travel for each complete revolution of the sprocket it is evident that with the above gear for each revolution of the sprocket the rear wheel makes two and one-eighth revolutions as the distance between the teeth of the sprockets is made invariable so as to fit the chain whatever the gear it is evident that the higher the gear the larger the sprocket the longer its radius and the greater the force to be applied from the pedal to the sprocket bracket on the other hand the higher the gear the greater the distance which the bicycle will travel at each revolution of the sprocket wheel with the twenty-eight inch rear wheel and the number of teeth in the rear sprocket eight the application of the above formula gives the following table of possible gears and the distance which the machine will travel with each revolution of the front sprocket for each gear respectively fifteen teeth gear fifty two and a half distance one hundred sixty four point eight five inches or thirteen point seven five feet sixteen teeth gear fifty six distance one hundred seventy five point eight four inches or fourteen point six four feet seventeen teeth gear fifty nine and a half distance one hundred eighty six point eight three inches or fifteen point fifty seven feet eighteen teeth gear sixty three distance one hundred ninety seven point eight two inches or sixteen point four eight feet nineteen teeth gear sixty six and a half distance two hundred eight point eight one inches or seventeen point four zero feet twenty teeth gear seventy distance two hundred nineteen point eight zero inches or eighteen point three two feet 
21 teeth, gear 73 and a half, distance 230.79 inches or 19.23 feet. 22 teeth, gear 77, distance 241.78 inches or 20.15 feet. It will be observed that the ratio of increase in nominal gear for each additional tooth is three and a half, and of increase in distance travelled for each revolution ten point nine nine inches or about point nine two of a foot. It is evident that by increasing the diameter of the rear sprocket, the leverage applied to its rim through the power transmitted by the chain will be increased but with each increase of diameter the front sprocket must be made correspondingly larger so as to attain the desired speed thus acquiring additional propulsive force to be applied at the pedal as the weight of parts has been lessened it has become possible to increase the size of both sprockets with a net gain of power in the rear sprocket as also to build the machine with a higher absolute gear with nine teeth instead of eight in the rear sprocket the formulas given above will give a different table of gears as thus with eighteen teeth front gear fifty six with nineteen teeth front fifty nine and a ninth with twenty teeth front gear sixty two and two ninths with twenty one teeth sixty five and three ninths with twenty two teeth sixty eight and four ninths with twenty three teeth seventy one and five ninths with twenty four teeth seventy four and eight ninths with twenty five teeth gear seventy seven and seven ninths in choosing a gear much depends upon the individual taste and comfort of the rider use the gear which you find the easiest on the road judging from his own experience the rider believes that for ordinary roading a gear of about sixty three is best and that with a thirty-pound wheel of that gear, without conscious speeding or extra effort, on a long run over ordinarily good and moderately hilly roads, an average speed of from ten to twelve miles an hour may be made. It is obvious, on consideration, that the higher the gear, the greater the difficulty in hill climbing. The round gears are now almost exclusively used, the experiments with an elliptical sprocket have not proved satisfactory a bicycle with a changeable gear has lately been invented the device consisting of an arrangement of toothed wheels set in front of the rear axle and which may be thrown into or out of the chain connection by means of a lever within the control of the rider ladies wheels are not ordinarily geared above fifty-nine and the throw or length of pedal crank in these is generally not more than six inches the longer the throw the greater the leverage to be obtained at each pedal stroke and the higher the lift of the foot some wheels are fitted with slotted cranks so as to be adjusted for a longer or shorter throw tires as to the merits respectively of the double and single tube tires each rider must form his own conclusions for his own use the rider prefers a single tube tire of the best make believing that it is the easiest to repair when repairs are needed and that it needs repair or adjustment less frequently than the double tire 
it cannot creep on the wheel if properly cemented and it is almost impossible for it to leak about the valve the valve nipple and tube being made in one piece on a bicycle having the single tube tire which was run nearly two thousand miles during the season of eighteen ninety four there was not once occasion to deflate a tire and but some half dozen times to pump up the air tension this operation in each case not consuming five minutes observation among friends using the same or similar makes of machines fitted with double tubes led to the conclusion that they experienced much more trouble than this especially from creeping tires or leaks about the valves the writer has never met a wheelman using the single tire who would willingly abandon it while he has listened to many bitter complaints from the owners of double tubes footnote it is a noteworthy fact that in the prospectus for eighteen ninety five of a leading company manufacturing high-grade wheels and which supplies either single or double tube tires to suit customers it is stated that during the first part of the season of eighteen ninety four the demand for single tubes was in the proportion of forty per cent of the whole number of orders received by the company but that during the latter part of the season this proportion was increased to ninety per cent it is to be observed that there is a great difference in the wearing qualities of different tires some in the market being of material or workmanship so bad that they will not easily resist tearing and puncture brakes the spoon brake or indeed any brake which is applied directly to the circumference of the pneumatic tire is destructive to the tire and should be used only in emergencies many such brakes if not all are uncertain in their operation and so not trustworthy many wheelmen prefer to ride without a brake checking speed by the friction of the foot against the tire in coasting and at other times trusting entirely to back pedaling to stop or check speed the band brake first used during the season of eighteen ninety three is a leather-lined steel strap applied to a drum set on the rear axle of the bicycle and connected with the brake handle set on the handlebar by a train of wires and springs it is invariable in its operation and cannot injure the tire it will stop the wheel shortly on level ground or on a moderate declivity like the spoon brake it will slip on a fast run down a steep road but it may always be relied on to check speed on any grade and with the help of back pedaling to stop the wheel in a few moments with a little care in handling the machine so as to avoid bending or otherwise injuring the brake connections it is practically impossible for it to get out of order and it has been found to do as good work at the end as at the beginning of the season and this on a machine in constant use upon the whole this brake is worth the extra weight which it adds to the machine which is hardly to be said of any other bicycle brake yet invented racers are run without brakes and it is understood that these will not appear in most of the models of road wheels for the season of eighteen ninety five saddle use the lightest saddle in which you can ride comfortably this being a matter which will be determined only by experience on the road 
some riders can endure sitting the lightest scorcher saddle for a whole day without the least discomfort others will find it intolerable even for a short run if you find that you must use a heavy saddle choose one of good length set on front and back springs like the old standard columbia number no. ten than which no easier saddle has ever been made or if you are a very heavy weight a garford or one substantially like it the columbia number no. ten weighs about four pounds the garford even more while the lightest scorcher saddles leather now weigh from fifteen to twenty ounces if your light saddle hurts you discard it at once if you persist in using it you may lay the foundation of a serious disease it is a good plan to have by you a light and a heavy saddle either of which you may use on occasion saddles have been invented to be made of woven wire and perhaps of other materials including a pneumatic saddle of rubber which the rider may use if he wishes to run the risk of its exploding under him but at present no material seems to be so satisfactory to most riders as good leather handlebar and handles as you will not ride with a stoop you will not use the dropped handlebar some bicycles are fitted with an adjustable handlebar which may be adjusted to the upright position or dropped to suit the wishes of the rider use cork handles these are easier and better than any others and if they are broken are easily replaced the height at which the handlebar should be adjusted depends much on the length of reach of the rider and it can only be said that the handles should be set at such a height that the rider sitting erect in the saddle can easily grasp them without stooping generally it may be said that with the upright handlebar the tip of the handle on the head of the machine being turned should pass about one and a half inches below the forward tip or pommel of the saddle if this last is rightly adjusted as to the length of the handlebar the writer prefers for his own use one which gives a distance in a straight line measured from tip to tip of the handles of from twenty two to twenty four inches pedals light rubber pedals are the most comfortable rat traps the lightest toe clips may be serviceable to the racer or time maker but it is not worth while to use them for ordinary roading wheel guards the use of these on men's wheels is not now common if you have them keep them at home for use in a possible emergency you will not ordinarily ride in muddy weather and on a dry road they are a useless and weighty encumbrance ladies wheels are equipped with both wheel and dress guards the latter covering the chain and sprockets end of chapter two